Hello and welcome to the final episode of The Election Beat, the general election media podcast from The Drum. A week after the vote that made a mockery of the pollsters, our panel of media marketing experts will be giving us their verdicts on the spinners and losers from the 2015 general election and its aftermath. I'm Cameron Clark, and returning to their safe seats here in the Jungle Studios debating chamber are the journalist Chris Boffey, Wolf Olin's creative director Chris Moody, the strategist and former US pollster Emily Hunt, TVWA's Ryan Wayne, and a very happy Michael Mazinski, the Tories' 2005 <laughs> campaign ad man. And we must start by congratulating Michael on doing what the pollsters couldn't and correctly predicting on this very podcast, no less, a Conservative majority. So, Michael, tell us, what did you see that the, uh, the pollsters missed? Um, my first prediction in the media was on October the 4th for a Conservative majority, um, based on my belief that the British public work in a different cycle to Westminster and the media and it's a sort of long-form wave and I believe that by the time of the election they would have taken the view that uh, the Conservatives handling of the economy and Cameron's leadership uh, uh, credentials versus Miliband would, would, would see them through to a victory. Uh, I have to say that having gone on the media many times thereafter with that message uh, a lot of people thought I was crazy, um, and I think that uh, I mean just on that subject, the um, poll data that Linton Crosby gave Cameron on May the sixth, when we had our last po podcast, uh, showed three hundred and twelve, and I said that Conservatives would get a majority of in single figures, which was between three two six and. 335. Three, it was actually <laughs> right in the mid sweet spot of 331. Uh, um, um, I think the pollsters, uh, Stephen uh, Shakespeare's in, in City AM today saying that, uh, you know, all the data was correct and basically shy Tories lied, <laughs> um, and that there was no difference between any form of internet or other polling. And I was just showing the team here a graph uh, by Adam Ludlow of Comres, which clearly showed that if you separated out telephone polling from internet polling, that this crossover movement had happened with a Conservative lead from January, and the trajectory of that, uh, which was uh, shown on the 14th of April, if that continued and you extrapolated it, would show a Conservative victory. So I guess it's a combination of gut feel backed up by instinct and uh, uh, some of the data points. But I think... Uh, Visually, you knew that uh, Miliband was going to lose when, on question time, he was asked uh, whether he would admit that the previous Labour government had overspent. And when he said no, it was almost like a ripple around the entire audience. And you showed, it showed how out of touch he was, both on economics and leadership. And it was those two issues that Linton Crosby... Oh, and sorry, I have to give credit to Linton because having worked with him in 2005, when he came in, as did we, very late before the election with Michael Howard, he was there two years before. They set out their campaign strategy for this election two years ago, and it was run with meticulous detail in those key constituencies to ensure that result. OK, well, we'll, we'll come on to, to what the, the Tories did right and, and perhaps what Labour did wrong uh, in a little while. But um, just on the subject of the, the pollsters, Emily, you've got experience of, of polling from the US. Um, what did you think of um, what Michael mentioned there about this idea that the data was right, but it was shy Tories lying to the pollsters? Do you think there's any credence to that? I don't really think there is. I think there's, I think there's a larger problem. We haven't quite figured out what it is yet. Um, we were talking earlier before we came on about how in the states in 2012, the online was, the online polling was more accurate than the telephone, but here this time, the telephone is more accurate than the online. It feels like there's a big moment when we need to better understand the panels that we're using, the sample that we're using, the way we invite people in. I think there's also another really large problem where we were asking people in constituencies about who they would vote for party-wise and not the names of the people that were actually going to be on the ballot. It's one thing to think about the Tories or the Greens or, you know, 
liberal Dems, whatever, if you've actually had a relationship with your MP, it doesn't really matter to that. It doesn't really matter to you as much, provided it's a positive relationship, <laughs> what what party they're coming from. So I feel like there were definitely a lot of institutional issues with the public polling, and I don't think we know what all of them are yet. And I, I think I do think it needs to be looked into um, by everybody involved. But the fundamental thing is, you've got a lot more freedom when you're doing private polling. You can work with the art and the science in a slightly different way, do some of, as um, my colleague here, Michael, was talking about, some of that intuition that goes into the reading of polls that helps you better understand what's going to happen at the end of the day. Um, straight up, just numerical polling is only going to give you one answer. If you're not digging under the why, maybe doing some qualitative research, some social media research, some other kind of aspect to give it more depth, you've only got one input, and that's only going to give your model so much. So I think it's it's a big moment to try and have the, the public pollsters figure out a new way to model and a better way to model in a country that's very difficult to do large enough samples in order to get the good quantitative data. Okay, and in response to, to how wide of the mark the polls were, there's been um, some calls for um, a change to the rules. So Lloyd Folks, the uh, former Labour Scotland minister and others have floated this idea that opinion polls should be banned in the run-up to elections. Chris Boffey, what do you think of that idea? Well, that's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to stop somebody from then doing so it privately? It'll be private polling. It'll all be leaked. It's rubbish. But we get to, you know, we, we've been talking about polling for 10 minutes. Uh, one of the great aphorisms of journalism is that news is people. And polling was either right or wrong, but the reality was, uh, I mean, Michael... Uh, deserves all the plaudits for saying last week that we'd get a majority, but I think I deserve a few for saying we lost it in 2010 when Miliband and Balls became the face of Labour and uh, the politics of envy re re replaced the the politics of, uh, of new Labour. So that's where I am on this. But no, polls will always be there, they will always take polls, and if they're banned they'll be done privately and leaked. Okay. It's quite conclusive, but a lot of nodding of, of the heads in the in the studio. So I think we're all pretty agreed on that. Um, so let's have a look at that Conservative victory then. And um, there's been all sorts of commentary in the last uh, week or so. It's been pretty much endless. Um, but but just quickly, why do we think that the Conservatives' campaign was more effective than it appeared to be? in the run-up to the, uh, the election. We were quite critical of, at times, not just us, but but many in the media were critical of, of Linton Crosby, the, the Tory strategist. Do we now, Chris Moody, have to give him a bit of credit for the for the way the Conservative campaign was run? Um, I'm a creative director, so I rarely give strategists any credit for anything. <laughs> um, but I, I, I suppose for, for me, the thing that, that stood out when, in hindsight now, and it's very obviously very easy with hindsight to have a very strong opinion about something, um, but just was the, the kind of singularity of the, the Conservative campaign. I think as a, as a kind of in, incumbent, it puts you in a, an interesting position that you can afford to, to sit back and wait for the, the challenges to, to come to you. And I think it was a very singular message. There was a very clear focus around, around the, the economy and it, it was hit over and over and over again. Um, and that clearly got through. And I think, you know, we talked last week about the, the Edstone with its, its six different pledges on there. The fact there were six, the fact that I can't remember any of them, probably implies that the, the message just wasn't, wasn't clear enough. And I think, you know, in the, world of, in the world of branding, having the big idea is still, after all these years, incredibly important. And I think a big idea came through. Whether it proves to be the right big idea or not is is the debate we'll have for the next four years. Well, I, I agree with that. The Tories never wavered from that core strategy of uh, economic competence. Can't trust the Labour Party. Mm. And they kept bringing up the Liam Byrne note. Mm -hmm. And the Liam Byrne note was aimed at the man who succeeded him. It was a jibe, a little joke. But to the public, it was the Labour Party laughing at the public. Yeah. Laughing at the public who were going to be unemployed, uh, in the middle of a recession and having all the problems that that, that entails and that was so big that, that will never go away for a long time you know it's, you've got a Labour politician taking the mickey out of the public and that's the way they would see it Okay, well, uh, Labour uh, and the Liberal Democrats, who we'll speak about as well, are, are now beginning 
the rebuilding process after after Thursday's result, and they're starting that by uh, searching for for new leaders. Uh, Ryan, some of the names in the frame, Chuka Umuna, who announced on, on Facebook this week uh, mm. from Swindon, his uh, leadership bid. Uh, Liz Kendall, Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper, Tristan Hunt, uh, some of the others who've been who've been mooted and who will, I dare say, announce that they're standing probably in the time it takes for this podcast to come out, which will be very inconvenient for us. But who is the, um, who is the pick of that bunch, do you think? And, and do you think that after the personal attacks on Miliband and what was said about his sort of presentational qualities or lack thereof, do they need someone sort of slicker and more media friendly now? Yeah, I think they do. I think one learning from this election, and we saw it in 2010 as well, is that slowly but surely British elections are becoming more presidential and so much is put onto that central leader figure and they have to have the qualities, the, the public expression leader. And I think out of the names you've mentioned, uh, Chukra Muna probably has them most visibly. I think a, a, a sort of not necessarily a, not an unfair label that's attached to Chukra is that he's style over substance. But actually, I think the Labour Party might benefit from that. I, I, it was interesting that the, the the report of his Facebook posting that I read this morning was that it was a wobbly video. And that the conjecture was that this was done deliberately because of that Don't very do. issue, and I thought mm. oh, a, you've got the spin going already. Yeah. But <laughs> well, what we've learned from this election is that the public and the media buy into spin. They take a hook, line, sinker, especially the media. And I think Labour's got to play into that game. So fair play on Chucker. I think the f- thing for Labour to look at it is the the deputy leadership elections as important as the leadership election as well. And actually, one thing Tony Blair did brilliantly was he had himself as that sort of slick new Labour figure, and then John Prescott, sort of a, a union guy on his right-hand side. And I think it's absolutely key for Labour supporters that we look at the two elections in tandem. And the one thing I'm looking at is the people announce themselves that depth of leadership. So you've got Tom Watson on one hand and someone like Stella Creasy. Both of them are great candidates for different reasons. I think Tom Watson would offset someone like Chuck Ramune and really appeal to the left of the party because the key thing for the Labour Party is that we stay united and this doesn't become a... Uh, the party of division, which we've seen when the Labour Party has to put the magnifying glass on itself, we divide and we can't avo- we've got to avoid that. And when we get Miliband achieved, it was uniting the party, we've got to maintain that. Um, and then Stella Creasy, who saw her majority increase to 23,000 in Walthamstow, and she is probably the leading MP across all different parties when it comes to engaging, mobilising young people, getting young people excited about politics and using social media. Um, to inspire, engage and excite people. So having her at the forefront of the Labour Party would be a great thing as well for all. But the thing about the uh, Blair-Prescott was that Prescott bought into Blair. Mm. He knew that the Labour Party needed to modernise and he bought into that. And he knew you wouldn't be in a... You had to compromise to get into a position of power and Prescott was willing to compromise. I'm not sure whether Tom Watson is willing to compromise. I know Tom quite well. And uh, he's very firm in his views. And he doesn't mind an argument and he doesn't mind splitting the party as he has done in the past. So I'm not sure whether that work. it would work. Whoever is the leader and the deputy leader are of the same mind like Prescott and Blair. Mm. It was funny this morning that the unions, you know, just as the NEC is debating the process today, you know, were categorical in that the their analysis of the election was that they need a, a, a Labour needs a leader who's more left-wing than Miliband, which is like, it was the Ken Livingston analysis on the night. The problem was, our guy wasn't left-wing enough. And you see this after every election that Labour loses, and it was only Blair who, you know, was the most, whatever you think of him, he was the most uh, effective election-winning individual for the Labour Party. Well, well, Tom Watson's a former union official, and... uh... He, if if he could come to an accommodation, or the new leader comes to an accommodation with Tom Watson, that'd be fine. But I'm I'm not sure. Tom's a bit like the uh, the frog and the scorpion. You know, why did you bite him? And because I do, that's what I do. <laughs> But if I was spinning this for the Conservative Party, I would say that uh, uh, the, the you know the candidate that the Conservative Party would most welcome is Chucker. Actually, I think they would they, that's the candidate they would actually most fear. Okay. Well, of course, I have to say as well, Dan Dan Jarvis, who ruled himself out, mm. I think was an incredible combination, and it's it's a real shame, but for understand entirely understand the reasons that he has, but sort of ex-military man with very very sensible politics. 
and you know we hemorrhaged votes to UKIP, which I think the you know a fair charge again at Labour's door is that we became sort of too London centric and a bit too lost in you know, the academic side of politics, and we missed out on what politics means to real people. And UKIP really tapped into that on the doorstep. And someone like Dan Jarvis would have reached out again. I think the challenge for Chukra Muna is to be able to do that. Was any of those candidates not from politics as usual, of those who are left or being put forward apart I mean, from Chuck, Dan? Chuck has been at the legal background. Lawyer, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but with Jarvis, I mean, uh, his, he was a major in the, in the military and he knows all about tactics and mm. strategy. And he's positioned himself for the next leadership. Yeah. Uh, because I, th I think that uh, we're going to have to get a leader this time who is going to lose not badly next time. And that's when Dan Jarvis will come to the fore. I mean, the, there is a sense in the party that the leadership, to win the leadership now is a bit of a poison chalice, and you are essentially taking one for the team. In the sort of David Moyes role coming in after, well, not, not exactly <laughs> following a great leader, but coming into a job that you know is going to be... Well, a Michael Howard role. Okay. Yeah, OK, that's probably a better analogy, and I shall, I shall uh, rethink that before I repeat it. Um, but um, obviously picking the leader is just the start of the, the sort of rebuilding process uh, for Labour uh, and for the for the Lib Dems who are going through the same thing at, at the moment and um, Chris Moody you're a, a branding expert mm. I mean the the problems that that Labour and, and the Lib Dems have in terms of connecting with the electorate seem to run deeper than than simply the, the person at the helm um, is it time for the parties to consider a rebrand something a bit more radical um, yes I, I, I think it is I mean we my organisation doesn't do party political branding, so I'm not. This is not a farming exercise now, but I, I genuinely believe that they they need to they need to make change. And I think what's true with any branding exercise is it needs to be built on change that happens internally. Um, I imagine over the next couple of weeks there'll be a lot of superficial change that will go on. We had the mentioned this morning about the Liberal Democrats simply becoming the Liberals and the the seeding of that into the media. Um, but I think it needs to be much more fundamental than that, and the change needs to happen internally, and that should inform then the brief for how then you, you take that externally to people. And I think there's a lot to be learnt from the way in which large, modern, progressive organisations actually rebrand and, and recreate themselves and constantly upgrade themselves, because actually this isn't a case of, of rebranding, it's more of a an update and a, and a change to fit with the public. The public are the people who've moved um, and we need to make sure that our political parties are able to to keep up with them. I think we should come up with some names so you know on that you could have Labour version 2.0 or uh, the provisional Labour or real Labour or I can't believe it's not Labour. <laughs> they, need, they need to, it needs to be a kind of a really considered change and I, I, I worry if the immediate reaction is to, to do something to create impact because impact can only be, be really truly created if there's if there's substance behind it. And you look at the, the big organisations in the world, they're open, they're human, they're people centric, they're digital first, they're they're kind of engaging with people in a way that competitors or traditional competitors are seen as, as friends or frenemies. And I think that sort of behaviour could be very welcome in a, in a mm. political arena. Your, your point actually about the rebranded need needing to come from sort of an internal belief and behaviour, I think it's a really, really valid point. And I think one of the challenges, and one thing Cameron got right actually in, in the Bill's election, was getting your troops into line. And I think a lot of people expected the Tories to divide and the right to sort of keep banging on about Europe, but they never, they stayed as, as a united force. Mm. I think that's the challenge to Labour over the next five years, is to get your, get your troops into line, essentially, and have them push in one direction, which then will allow you to give that single, coherent, crystal clear brand. And I guess one of the challenges for the Tories is, given the small majority and the powerful voice of the right and the sort of question of Europe as well, whether they can sort of keep in line over the next five years, and if, if not, then there's, a, there's an opportunity for Labour to sort of seize upon that. But the Tories started rebranding yesterday. When, when Cameron sat down with his cabinet, he made that little speech about this is the party of the people, this is the party of the working people. He was rebranding his party and, and moving 
right into the Labour territory, the Labour territory where they should be, the central territory. Yep. And he was already moving before they were even thinking about it. This is fascinating because um, you could say the real winner of the election was the NHS. Because if you look historically, the Conservative governments have actually spent more money increasing funds into the NHS, but it's been their Achilles heel because people perceive that a Labour party government is going to look after the NHS. So that's why you had the Conservatives saying, well, we're going to spend £8 billion and uncosted. They had permission to say that, that because mm. people trusted them on the economy. Labour said, well, oh, we're not going to match that. We're only going to spend £2.5 because we're going to do you know, competent economics. Well, people didn't believe that Labour were going to be competent. The biggest challenge, and this comes back from the time when I worked on the Conservative Party and what Ian Duncan Smith's been trying to do, all the way through uh, the kitchen cabinet by Andrew, now Lord Cooper, all of the, that and the, and the uh, hugging a husky was all about trying to take the brand pollution that the Conservative Party label puts on their policies. And this piece of research that Cooper did uh, about 12 years ago did focus groups and tested a Conservative policy and a Labour policy side by side on the same issue. Unbranded, people chose the Conservative policy because it was a better policy. When they put the brand on, they cho chose Labour. And when you understand that, that's what's been happening for the last you know, a few decades. And what that, uh, Chris said about that speech is, is very interesting because um, a lot of what they've been doing in terms of jobs, in terms of universal credit, is actually trying to help the less well-off in society. There's this perception, again, that uh, the Tories are the toffs and only care about the rich. In 1979, when we had really high tax rates, the top 1% of taxpayers contributed 12% of the tax take. Last year it was 29%. Under Labour, previous government, 22%. So I think if they can do that flip, it's going to be very hard then for Labour, because Labour lost the mantle of being actually the Workers' Party. It was the yeah, I, I take issue with your, your tenet that uh, it's, it's all about doing best for the workers. I think it's all about, about cutting the benefits bill. Yeah. <laughs> and the NHS point as well, I don't think stands in the £8 billion Last time round, three billion that was spent on a reorganisation they were wanted. A and E waiting time shop. No, I was talking about the eight billion that they pledged in in this parliament. Yeah, but I mean, they they don't necessarily spend the money effectively. And to the the policy point of view, there's a reason why people don't like it when the Tory brands put it on there because they they don't trust them in that way. And I think you know I think that's that's per that's perfectly valid. It'll be what will be interesting will to see, be to see what the Tories do with the North. And I imagine the North will see a big swathe of investment because the Tories will see seats up for grabs there, which have previously been Labour Heartland, and they will pour money into the North. They'll see infrastructure development, and they'll see... That's what Osborne's already exactly. you know, started. I'd be interested yeah. to know what Chris thinks about how you rebrand trust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't <laughs> think you can rebrand trust. Re <laughs> I yes, think you, you can. You, you absolutely can. I, th I think you have to build you trust. You, can, you can't apply a layer of, of trust on top of no, something. Well, not a layer it, on top of, but you have to build something from within. I mean, it goes back yeah. to your point on rebranding, having mm. that rebrand from within an organization so it's something real, not just something that you're saying out loud. And I think in order to actually build a brand that encourages trust, it again comes back to that rebrand needs to be focused on real people, what they need, yeah. what they want. Um, you know, we talked last week about um, how the Edstones seem to be ridiculously overfocused grouped to the point of just being vapid. Um, however, you know, Michael here is talking about focus groups that help give actual insight on where the gaps are and where you need to move to. And I think this is one of the important things. There's good research and there's mm. bad research. And I think those are two very, very good examples. And what I hope is that when the parties are figuring out what to do next, what their ideology should be, how to speak about them, how to build up policies that are coherent around what their ideology is and how to con how to convey yeah. it, that it'll be based on something real and that it won't just be vapid, yeah. that it'll actually be something robust where you're identifying the gap and then moving through it. Yeah, I hope the Labour Party have a look at Ilford, where yeah. it was very close and the Labour candidate, young candidate won, and he was asked why he won. He said, well, Ilford, a lot of people from Tower Hamlets and from the uh, East London who've moved out, they were aspirational people. They wanted bigger houses. They wanted better schools for their children. I was one of those. 
-hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I could talk to them. I could mm -hmm. talk to the electorate. They recognised me, and I recognised them. Yeah. Yeah. And the Labour Party's got to look at it, look at that and try and yeah uh, cover the country with that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we touched there upon uh, this idea of rebranding trust, and just before we sort of move off rebrands if any party needs a, a rebrand based on trust i think it's the liberal democrats who obviously had a, a, a terrible night and, and some of that's been traced back to this idea that that they made promises that they couldn't keep when they entered the coalition um chris moody you talked uh, you talked briefly about this idea that's been floated that they could rebrand to the liberals which apparently is favored by uh, tim farron who many expect to be mm. the next uh, Liberal Democrat leader, um, would that be just a superficial mood move? Would that miss miss the point of what the Liberal Democrats need to do? Yeah, I, I don't think we should necessarily trust what I say because I also said last week that um, Nick Clegg would be incredibly important in making the decision for the, um, the, the, the final decision at the well, end Nick of the Clegg day. Nick Clegg thought he was going to be very important yeah, I think as well. He probably just went home very early, didn't he? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would be. It would be primarily quite quite superficial. I, I think there is definitely need for a, a, a change in terms of, of language. I think language and tone of voice is incredibly important. Um, but I think it ultimately comes down to this point, and we were talking about trust, these sort of emotional connections that you make with people, it needs to come from demonstrating them. You can't just apply a superficial badge. A new badge over the top of the old stuff will still be the old yeah. stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the naming makes logical sense um, and it would show a shift it doesn't really necessarily show a shift to where so I, I think that would be interesting how we would build it, that it, it, is the problem for the Liberals Liberal Democrats is that they've always been two-way facing so in Labour seats they tended to be you know more right-wing in, in Conservative seats more left-wing so they've had two wings to their party depending on which constituencies the uh, MPs came from and that was then shown when Nick Clegg in this time round said, um, oh, we'll be the, the, the heart if the Conservatives are elected and the economic head if Labour are elected. You can't, that's not a positioning. This is two completely opposite things. And they, they therefore were totally squeezed. And uh, I think... But the Lib Dems basically were the party of protest up until the last election. And they were the, they, they were, they were the party that was sort of... Could be slightly left of left of Labour, and then they went into a partnership with a right-wing government, and they lost all trust, and they 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 they, they reneged basically on on the, on their voters, and their voters came back to bite them, yeah. mm. and 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 they, the two candidates up are uh, Tim Farron and Norman Lamb. Now Norman Lamb was a, a minister in that, so if they continue with Norman Lamb, they're going to have more of the same. Tim Farron distance himself and he turns around and says we are now going to resort to being the Lib Dems of what we were we are going to be the party of the left the party of protest the party of heart I think that's probably the way to go mm. otherwise they're dead for a generation or more if we were talking about a corporate client with a massive reputation issue we would tell them to do things like figure out who their important target segments were, who to completely ignore, and who to actually go for. Then you do a bunch of research with them to figure out what you need to say to them and what you actually do to back it up. So if we had, if we were sitting here talking about a giant fast food chain and what they needed to do to get their reputation improved, we'd come up with something like all white meat chicken in the nuggets and providing fruit in the in the little children's meals and you know not using um, sweatshop labor to build little toys or whatever we'd come up with some list of things we'd be able to prioritize them we'd understand how they would speak to people we'd have to then actually do them it would have to have an organization involved that would be willing to take a prioritized list of actions and do them and know how to talk about them and I think what we're talking about here is this trust issue this brand issue policy issue the fact that the party feels somewhat schizophrenic with different sides to it what they need is to actually know what they're doing where they're going and what actions they need to take to actually best underpin a proper brand but I think politics sorry is different to uh, big business uh, in that you have the starting point actually is within what is the political philosophy of the party and what do you believe in? And, and then, of course, make sure that your chicken nuggets yeah. conform to that. But, 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 you're but saying it is different. It's not, it's not just doing research to find out what you should say to people. It's, it's, yeah. it's leading them and having a point of view. 
But if they don't know what their point of view is, and they don't know how to articulate it, and they're... Yes, but the, their point of view has to come with somewhere from yeah. being what liberals mean, mm. and, oh, and heritage. It can't be just because, you know, the world's changed, so we'll, we'll now say what New Labour say, we're going no, to say. No, absolutely. I'm not saying that they should go out and say things that they don't believe in. What I'm saying is they should go out, figure out what they need to say, and then actually go forward and do it. So that we're not talking about a group of people who don't know how to action underneath any message yeah. or brand that they're yeah. giving. Okay, well, on that point, we're, we're going to move on to just have a look at uh, UKIP, a party that did very well in the popular vote, although that did not translate into seats. They only got one seat despite uh, winning 3.8 million votes up and down the, the, the country, or in England at least. Um, and um, in terms of articulating the message that, that kind of resonates with voters or a certain kind of voter that is one thing that uh, Nigel Farage did seem to do a very good job of now Nigel Farage resigned uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of losing his seat uh, not winning his seat rather last Friday morning and then sort of swiftly unresigned a few days later um, how important is Nigel Farage staying on as UKIP leader in so far as keeping their momentum going and keeping them as a, a party of, of some scale if very few seats Michael? I'm not actually entirely sure because I don't remember UKIP fighting particularly hard on the AV vote because they are now saying, oh, isn't it terrible? We've got three times as many votes as the SNP mm. and they've got 56 uh, MPs and we've got one. Um, but I don't, I don't, maybe someone correct me, but I don't remember them sort of, you know, up there with the Liberals, you know, fighting to change the electoral system. And I think what Chris said earlier is correct, is that they became the party of protest for a lot of the working class, and that's where la that's Labour's job, is to reconnect with those people, because uh, I think they, they felt very alienated. And that's why I was interested to know if, if Labour was going to bring in somebody who was not from uh, this sort of political hierarchy, because I think that's one of the things that, mm. if I was looking at it, going back to, you know, what do you need to do, uh, I would try and find somebody who, who wasn't just from another... But, but, but everyone's going to run the clip time and time again. When Farage said he was going to resign if he didn't win the seat, and someone said, are you going to resign, Mr Farage? And he said, are you calling me a liar? Well, it's been dancing on a pin since <coughs> then. You know, I tried to resign, but they wanted me back, they're making me be elected. He's lying. He's mm. not resigning. He is a liar. That clip will come back to haunt him. In saying that, UKIP will be very strong uh, in electioneering over the uh, the in-out vote on, uh, on, mm. the, on the EU. And I just wonder whether the, how the four million people feel about Nigel Farage's sort of bogey-cokey. And I imagine they're not that bothered because... I think most of them bought into... Most of them would have uh, wanted him to stay. Yeah, I think, I think what I, I had understood was that they were going to have a, a leadership election in September and he would have won. stood. He would have won it. Yeah. And then he would have won then. Yeah. But at least that would have been a bit more, you know... Yeah. Would have kept up the pretense, yeah, Exactly. So, but yeah. it's sort of UKIP have... This is the right rules, start, isn't it? <laughs> but it's interesting to see what, you know, because there's already stuff about Carswell not taking the short money out of principle and yeah. then... Farage saying, well, we'll sort that out. And so there is clearly, you know, you've got an M their one MP, not the leader of the party. And I th whether, you know, the media's stoking it up or whether there is a genuine tension, we'll see how that it, plays out. It's quite a sort of contemporary, it's quite a modern phenomenon, isn't it, that this, this personal brand of his is, is so interwoven with what the party is and is in people's mm -hmm. eyes. Mm -hmm. that it's almost inseparable. And, and it's, it's like Clarkson and... Top Gear and Ronald McDonald and McDonald's. They, it, he's so interwoven with with what they stand for and what they represent that we take him out and suddenly it, there's not kind of anything anything there to discuss. And I think the media need him probably more than <laughs> more than anybody because he's a very you know he's very good for filling pixels and he's very good for filling column yeah. inches. Um, and if he, he does eventually go, then. He'll be need, we'll need him to be replaced by someone who can equally fill yeah. that space. But the man in the pub does get tedious, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, just just one last thing on on the parties be, before we move on to some other issues that have sort of sprung out of the election. Um, 
Scottish Labour. Ryan, I'm looking at you with your your, your Labour hat on. Um, obviously, we, we've just talked about how Labour uh, did lose votes to, to UKIP in England, but obviously they lost a hell of a lot of seats to the SNP in Scotland. Uh, Jim Murphy is, at the, the time of this podcast, at least clinging on a Scottish Labour leader. How big a job does Labour have in Scotland? I mean, a huge job by the looks it's of it. It's a huge job. It's a huge job. And... I think we've been punished for getting into bed with the Tories, essentially, during the uh, yes-no referendum last year. Um, I think, I, I personally am a big fan of Jim Murphy, but the swing's gone against them, and it may just be that Labour needs to freshen up and needs to change across England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. Uh, I think the... It's going to be a challenge for, because now the SNP are MPs and they have jobs to do and you know, they are held accountable by their local constituencies. My my hope and anticipation almost over the next five years is that the SNP might actually be undone by their success. Although I imagine when things go wrong for them, they'll just try and pin that against the Tories and once again they're operating in this sort of arena with, with no rules. They can essentially say and offer what they want. And do you they... think the constituents will accept that though? Do you think that the people who voted for them in constituencies across Scotland will not expect their MPs to, to fight on sort of local issues and important kind of community things as well, obviously as, as well as the national Yeah, I, I think they will. It'll be interesting to see how much the SNP does that and how much they try and be a sort of disruptive force in, in Parliament and whether they can balance the two. But in Scotland, Labour have got to completely renew I think Labour have got to federalise. They're going to have to have Scottish Labour, yeah. and it's going to be cut off from English Labour. But because it's two elections, you see, yeah. this is the problem. You're fighting a. You've got to be more left wing in Scotland and more right wing in the rest of the well, UK. We, the, the Labour has just got to be a self-contained unit in yeah. Scotland. So you need the freedom and flexibility well, to do that. I think that. it's going to be fascinating when um, you know they're talking about giving a federal state effectively well, to, just say to mirror, Scotland. Mirroring no, politics. No, yes, but when Scotland gets their accountability to uh, both uh, spend their money and raise it, their deficit is going to be double that of the rest of the United Kingdom, and they're going to have you're going to have a sort of you know side by side case study of what you know quite left wing economic policies are going to have on an economy versus what's going to happen in England. I, I, and I, maybe that's being, you know, deliberately uh, thrust upon them because the SNP didn't actually want that mm. in, the, in the short term. And, you know, th uh, that could have quite a bad effect for, for the Scots because there's already a lot of Scottish businesses talking about moving down south. So, I, you know, you can have all your Scottish SNP, you know, um, banner-waving... But what's that actually going to do for the for the people in Scotland? Well, the SNP have got to prove that they're a the party of competence once mm. they get the Devo Max, and this is where the Labour Party might come back as a central, as a, as a more central party to uh, rescue them. To rescue them, yeah. Mm. I think that's the only hope. Yeah. But what's interesting about Labour is that you know so much of the focus before the election was that oh the SNP taking you know a big slug of Labour seats will mean that Labour won't be able to you know have a majority or they'll have to do a deal with the SNP. The fact was that this election was so uh, such a conservative victory in the in England that had every single seat in Scotland been Labour, the Conservatives would still be sitting here with a majority. Mm. So they they they've been you know I was going to use a very rude word then, but they've been doubly uh, skewered by <laughs> Scotland and the extent of the defeat in in England. OK, well, let's keep the rude words out of it or else we have to tick a little explicit box on iTunes, which will uh, probably lose us some uh, some uh, some listeners of uh, a sensitive disposition. But uh, let's um, let's let's move on. I mean, it feels remiss of us to speak uh, so little about the SNP, given the scale of their victory. But actually, that was one of the things that the pollsters did predict correctly and that we were all sort of expecting from this election anyway. So I guess the interesting thing now will be 
how it does play out having 56 uh, SMP MPs in, in Westminster. But um, with time ticking away, let's move on to a couple of other issues. Um, there's an interesting piece this week uh, from the BBC's technology correspondent, uh, Rory Kellen-Jones, uh, under the heading, uh, it wasn't social media what won it, echoing the, the Sun's uh, headline uh, to some extent from 92. Um, he noted that uh, many are concluding that social media platforms are just giant echo chambers where voters have their prejudices confirmed rather than challenged. And, uh, and that does reflect some points that, that we've been making on this podcast over the past few weeks. Um, Chris Moody, do you think that we, perhaps more so on the sort of left side of politics, have a tendency to overstate the importance of what's being said on, on Twitter and social media? Um, no, I don't, I don't think you can overstate it. Um, I think it's, it, it may not have necessarily proved to be incredibly directly important this time round. Um, but I suspect that it's going to increasingly be be more important, and and I think the the kind of thing that the party should be focusing on isn't necessarily how do we get the most out of Twitter, but what's coming after Twitter? What's what's going to be the the next Facebook? How do we start a conversation with people um, in in the, these new ways, and how do we engage in these platforms? The Chukaramuna Facebook video, whether it's slightly stylized or not. It, it, it's interesting because he's starting from a place which is a place where lots of people spend their time now. Um, and I think in order to, to win in the future, you're going to have to be engaged on those levels. And I think, you know, if you look at the people who are in Syria recording their lives and telling stories on, on Twitter and on Facebook and Instagram, if you look at the way in which five-year-old, six-year-old kids are, are engaging and, and receiving news and information from the world... Um, it's only going to be something that's going to become more and more important. Um, it's not about the platforms, it's not about Twitter, it's not about Instagram, it's about what you can do with them that matters. Um, so I think not focusing on actually the, the software, but focusing on the content that, that goes through well, it. It's got to be the content. Mm. You know, it's no good having the best software. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Or the best conduits. If you haven't got anything to say... You've got to have a compliment. Yeah. I have to say, my, my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed on the day of the election, if you looked at you would have thought it was going to be Labour whitewash. Mm. The thing I've learned is that I need to diversify my French page. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, this is a this is a verbal friend request on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> An unlikely okay. coalition yeah. forming. Oh, I think that for we could do that. The Grand Coalition, not in government, but uh, <laughs> to change too much politics. I... How the parties used it was quite interesting. I mean, I haven't seen the data, but my understanding is that Conservatives actually spent in paid-for Facebook advertising because it's so targeted. They had a very targeted, in those key constituencies, with very clear messaging, you know, in terms of... Because, you know, decapitating that Liberal vote, those weren't people going back to Labour. They, they managed to get their messages out through using... It wasn't through... Uh, you know, free uh, engagement of people sharing their stuff. It was by buying it, like TV ads. Yeah, but and, I'm sure and, you're and right, but I'm not convinced that so many people in Cornwall, Devon and Somerset, where where the Tories did really well against the Lib Dems, I'm not sure that, that many down there are Twitter, Facebook... I think, I think we're being very Facebook. London about this. I think my, my parents live in Cornwall, and well, uh, they, 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 they would certainly uh, be uh, you know, I, I by that. So I think, you know, new things are new things, but fundamentals are fundamentals. And where in this country we cannot buy TV advertising for a political party, what they did very early on was they used Facebook to run effectively very uh, localised campaigns using a broad, you know, a, a moving video message as though it was a TV screen. Mm. Emily, do you think that that would have made a difference? I mean, obviously we will have to, to wait to find out and maybe only in time will we ever know exactly how much the, the Tories spent on, on Facebook and also how much impact um, that did have. But do you think this idea of kind of targeting messages allied to the sort of private polling that mm. the Tories were doing, which seemed 
much more effective than the, the polling that we were aware of. Is that the sort of yeah, way to go in elections? I think, I think no matter what it is that you're trying to do, whether you're trying to get people to vote for you or if you're trying to sell a product or if you're just trying to change the world a little bit, you need to talk to people where they are and where they're open to being spoken to. So I think the doorstep is a fabulous, yeah. fabulous place and is, you yeah. know, hugely important. And I think there were yeah. some missed opportunities in this campaign for that. Yeah. But I think Facebook is a really easy place to have those conversations. You know, yes, amongst our own friend groups, we get a bit lost in in our own, you know, one-sidedness. We tend to know a lot of people like ourselves, um, or else you get into some very heated debates and <laughs> awkward times. Um, but you can do very targeted ad buys on Facebook. Um, I've got friends who run small businesses who do exactly that, and I think it's a brilliant idea to have the parties using what's available to them to speak to people who might be open to them, where they know perhaps from private polling or other research or information gathered on the doorstep that there is a gap in their communication and that that's where people are interested in hearing it. Mm. I mean, I've done a lot of research over the years on where people feel like social media is and is not appropriate for them. So, for example, most people a couple of years ago, would not have wanted to interact with their bank on Twitter. Except now, that's where you get decent customer service. So it's a little bit different. We're more used to interacting with institutions through social media than we used to be because we get a response. Mm. So maybe we've got you know good targeted ad buys on Facebook. We've got interactions on social media where you can actually get some attention to your to your own issues and your you know what you're looking for. Um, and you've got shares of interesting conversations. I don't think it's perfect. Um, we haven't gotten there entirely, but if people want to be spoken to on their social media, great, speak to mm -hmm. them there. Actually engage with potential voters and make them feel heard. But at the same time, people, you know, I've got, I've got a great belief in the electorate and they see through, through things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as much as I wanted Labour to win, or even get into a coalition, I could see the faults in in Labour and where they were going and how they were going along the, the old route of the politics of envy. And the people recognised that they weren't the real deal. And it wouldn't matter how many ads you put up, they weren't the real deal this time. Absolutely. If you, if you don't have anything to say, it doesn't matter where you say it or how you say it. Yeah. If you're not saying the right thing, they don't bother buying an ad for it. They just were not connecting. Well, Ryan, you were you were knocking on some doors for Labour in the yeah. in the run up to the election. I mean, does this ring true? The Labour weren't cutting through. Well, I mean, I was in Suffolk and Bermondsey where we were being received very very well, and Birmingham as well. Again, where you know, very very positive in up in Yardley. I think does raise an interesting point though, because I think Labour's approach was to, and I think it's probably about money in the bank to be honest. But they they. Their approach to Facebook was to recruit advocates, and have advocates then speak to their peers and you know pass on the Labour messages. But I think what ultimately it sent into was people who absolutely love Labour speaking to other people who absolutely love Labour. Mm -hmm. I think one of the problems that needs to be looked at over a long period of time is who those advocates are, both online and also on the doorstep. And people who get involved in political parties, and I speak you know with someone who, who has pretty weird bunch and <laughs> not necessarily the people you want being the face and voices of the Labour Party on the doorstep and I you know I saw a glimpse of it in Birmingham but thankfully you know it was a pretty much a, a given that Labour would win up in Yardley but there's people knocking on on doors and they're just stilted conversation not necessarily the most inspiring people and you know if they were asked a tough question they'd sort of look at their feet and shuffle along a little bit and I think the Labour Party's probably got to look at what its campaign and messages methods are and just really hone down on one or two and make them brilliant. So in the next five years, Labour should be recruiting its army of advocates. There's willingness there, you know, the party's seen 20,000 people joining the last week alone and just making them fantastic, making them brilliant and making them people who can you know, form relationships and bonds with the British public. And then if you are on them with the right messages, to your point before, I think you've got a, a winning combination there. 
Okay. Well, I think uh, we've, we're sort of done with the, the post-mortem on, on this election. and uh, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, Ryan's relieved yeah. because I don't think he was enjoying uh, picking over Labour's defeat. But um, just obviously now we have a, a Conservative government. David Cameron has put together his uh, cabinet over, over the last uh, few days. And uh, this is a media podcast. So let's just have a look at one of the sort of media stories uh, that seems to have come out of that. And uh, John Whittingdale the newly appointed Culture Secretary, is on record as saying that the BBC licence fee is unsustainable and worse than a poll tax. So how worried should the BBC be by this new Conservative administration? Well, uh, the BBC would think they should be worried, given that uh, Whittingdale's a prominent member of the 1922 Committee against equal gay rights, equal marriage and for fox hunting. But actually, his tenure on the Culture Committee has proved to be a bit of success. He's uh, been the voice of reason, I think. And if you look at what he said about the licence fee, he's talking about in the future. He's talking about 16, 20 years. And it, I'm not sure when the licence fee comes up again, but it's a few years in the future. It's got to be changed. So I, I don't think the BBC have got that much to worry about him. Uh, the BBC is being accused by the left and by the right, which is the way it should be. Yeah, well, that's the BBC's stance, isn't it? Or sort of informally, that if they're being accused of being biased by both sides, they, they must be doing something right. I mean, just do a quick straw poll in the, in the studio. Did anyone think that the BBC was biased in, in one shape or form or another during the election? No. 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 Oh, everybody's no. shaking their heads. I think that the... the, the... The Conservatives quite cleverly attacked the question time audience before the actual uh, uh, event, and then actually <laughs> it was the Labour attacking it for being stacked with Conservatives. I think it's actually stacked with the British people, and the British people voted in line with the, what people saw in the BBC interactions with the public. So, and, and the, I said that last time. I thought that question time, where the leaders were actually being grilled by members of the public, was was the only time for me when the election really got exciting. I think that in terms was of the campaign. definitely a, a highlight of the campaign. Just quickly before we finish up, any other highlights of the campaign or even lowlights that, that spring to mind? Chris Moody, anything for you? I would just, I, I mean, actually, I'd, I'd kind of like to put the, the campaign behind me, and I think the Culture <laughs> Secretary, um, it, that for me is, is where we kind of should be focusing now, is, is kind of these new roles, and particularly the area of culture and media and arts is so undermined and, and so sort of under under supported as a as a valuable contribution to the to the country and i would love for the in this next four years for a lot more effort to go into making sure that it didn't just come across i think the media is terrible at doing this and it's actually biting the hand that feeds it in, in some respects but making it feel that any sort of cultural within the government is just for pretentious arts and for ballet and it's not the case at all it's it's one of the most influential parts of the, the human experience. It's also something that brings a tremendous amount of cash into the country. Um, and I, I'd really love that to be much more supported this time around. I get the feeling it might not necessarily be, but I would, I would hold out hope for that. So okay. fingers crossed for the future, really. Well, that's a, a campaign that I think the drum can definitely get behind. So on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to, to leave it. And that's all for, for the election beat. Um, I just want to say a big thank you to Jungle Studios and all the team here at their studio in Soho for being so fantastically accommodating over the last uh, five weeks. Thank you also to our panellists, Chris Boffey, Chris Moody, Emily Hunt, Ryan Wayne, Michael Mazinski, and all the other guests that have uh, joined us on the show over the past few weeks. Uh, the election's over, but the media commentary goes on at thedrum.com. And from all of us here, all that's left to say is thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.